This is Me, Myself and Disaster, the show all about disasters with a human focus. From hurricanes to humanitarian issues, we journey across fault lines to explore trends in disaster preparedness, response and recovery and understand how our guests became involved in disasters. Over to you, Disaster Brothers, Josh and Andrew. Hello there and welcome back for another episode of Me, Myself and Disaster, the show where we talk all things disaster with a human focus. It's great to have you with us again as we navigate our way through what feels like a never-ending disaster landscape in the year 2020. Just last week, a tornado ripped through Auckland, tearing off roofs of houses and even injuring a woman giving birth in an ambulance in Otara. It's crazy stuff, isn't it, Andrew? Yes, it certainly is, Josh. And today on the show, we're talking more about women in emergencies. We're speaking with Amanda Lamont, who's the co-founder of the Australasian Women in Emergencies Network. Amanda will share her insights and experience in recovery during the recent Australian bushfires and discuss the strength of the female perspective in the disaster landscape. We're also going to explore steps leaders can take to change organisational culture so we can attract and retain more women in emergency-related roles. Now, what we've done, we had such an amazing conversation with Amanda. There was so much content. We've split this up into two episodes for you so that you didn't miss out on a single thing. Let's dive in. Today, the air is thick with ash and smoke. The landscape drained of colour. Amanda Lamont, thanks for joining us. How are you after such a challenging season of cascading events, bushfires, floods, now COVID-19? Can you take us on your journey of the last 10 years as well and let us know how you reached the point in your career where you are today? Yeah, sure. And when you say after, I don't think we finished yet, uh, Andrew. I think we've got a long way to go. So um, in, in the middle of something really complicated and complex and where we've never been before. Uh, but in terms of my journey into emergency management, yeah, um, not, I don't think too many people plan to have a career in emergency management. Uh, I certainly didn't. Uh, you might know I started life as a lawyer, actually, a corporate lawyer in a, a big uh, commercial law firm in Adelaide. And um, I found very quickly that that wasn't my gig. And my, um, my sense of humanitarian, social justice, wanting to help people um, overtook uh, the, the shoulder pads and the briefcases of the 80s. And um, I uh, ended up traveling quite a lot um, over the course of various um, times of my life and came back to Australia after spending a year in South America, um, visiting a lot of poorer communities and spending a lot of time with, with, with uh, kids in, in slums in Rio in Brazil. And I, I decided that was really a, a career for me to be um, working with people that were more vulnerable and experiencing harder stuff. Uh, that led me to uh, working at World Vision uh, in international programs uh, and travelling a lot uh, to these communities for about five years. And, um, and then that led to a role in the Red Cross, which happened to be in emergency services, which was really the start of my emergency management career. Um, and um, I worked at Red Cross and started volunteering in emergency services. And since then, I've had roles in local government and um, most recently at the Australian Institute for Disaster Resilience which is very much focused on um, a national level of resilience building at policy and strategy level and sharing knowledge, knowledge information and wisdom uh, amongst um, everyone who has a role in emergencies. And now I am a 
a volunteer firefighter and I still volunteer with the Australian Red Cross. And I um, do lots of project work as an expert in disaster risk reduction resilience, um, assisting in um, various aspects of disasters, both before, during and after. Um, and most recently, I've been working up in northeast Victoria, uh, supporting communities and local government and other stakeholders in their fire recovery work. It's really interesting. And I think, too, um, there's been certainly a number of people that we know. I mean, we're both engineers and have um, changed our life to be in emergency management. And I think the lesson for me out of this and speaking to other people is just follow your passion and do something you actually want to do rather than what you maybe thought you wanted to do in high school. So, yeah, really interesting to hear that story and, and, and where you are today. Now, you mentioned, Amanda, that uh, recently you've been working in the recovery space and, and doing some work uh, after the bushfires. And you know, it was the, the RFS commissioner in New South Wales that used the words himself unprecedented to, to, um, to describe what we saw um, over, over summer. And, you know, we look at the Sendai framework and there's, there's a whole lot of conversation around building back better. But I'd love to hear your thoughts around what are you seeing locally on the ground um, some of the disasters that Andrew and I have been involved in, there's always a mix of sentiment after disasters. There's, there's some people that, you know, just will not have the capacity to build back and, and as a consequence, leave the area. You know, some it motivates them and almost um, gives them a more steely motivation to stay there and, and build back better. But there's also people that, you know, go, I've got nothing to worry about. It's, you know, th- there's been a fire here. What have, what have I got to worry about? When is it going to burn? It's not going to burn again in my lifetime. But what are you hearing on the ground and what are you experiencing? Uh, there is so much in what you just said then, Josh, and I could talk about that for a couple of hours. I won't this time. Um, what I think the most important thing to remember about disasters is they are a very, very personal experience. Even within a household, every individual in that household is going to experience that disaster differently, from children to adults to partners to single people to business owners. Um, so what I've most my most recent reflection uh, just coming back two days ago from from Koryong in northeast Victoria, is that there is no one-size-fits-all for disasters in terms of preparedness or what you do in the response phase or most particularly in recovery. We have to address um, people's needs uh, in terms of walking alongside them in their journey at an individual level, but also at the household and the community and the regional area as well. So there's lots of different things we need to do side by side. So individuals um, who you form community groups to lead their own recovery, which is what we're aspiring for, this, this fabulous model of community-led recovery, has its own challenges because community is not something that's a homogenous thing that naturally comes together and, and agrees on everything. Um, community groups um, are often um, conflicting with each other within the same space. So some individuals, yeah, you're right, some individuals take a really um, lackadaisical approach and think, oh, she'll be right won't happen to me. That wasn't too bad. Um, a little bit like COVID, right? Oh, that wasn't too bad. I don't know what the big fuss was about. Whilst these were really catastrophic, unprecedented conditions over summer with the, um, the black summer, for some people that's, life, that's been absolutely life-changing. For other people, they sort of dusted, them, dusted themselves off and are thinking, not quite sure what the big fuss is. Absolutely imperative is to understand every individual experience about that. Now, you talked about Build Back Better. Gosh, that is, that is what I could talk about um, a long time. A couple of years ago, I was um, um, working on a project to um, review and republish the National Community Recovery Handbook. Um, and 
Build Back Better is the national framework for disaster recovery. And we talked a lot about whether that was the right terminology. Um, we didn't really like it, but we stuck with it because the concept of um, resilience is embedded in the better words, I guess. But the, the build and the back are the problems, right? Because recovery is not about building stuff or fixing stuff that was broken. And back suggests going back, you know, this back to a new normal, snap back for COVID that we hear about. I don't like it because I think we should be actually um, building forward. You know, people talk about recovering forward. So one of the risks in recovery is that people, people are shattered. They're really hurt. They're really broken and they have lost control. So to get control back, the immediate response is to fix what was broken and put it back to where it was and to get everything back so it's like it never happened. The reality is that's usually impossible for people. Um, you can't build it back. Life has changed forever. It'll never be like that again. And the opportunity to actually recreate something or reframe something or build something that was better and, and in, build in sustainability, build in resilience into structures that weren't there before. But people are in such a hurry to repair themselves, they often rush into things and just go about putting the fences back where they were, putting the shed back where it was, putting the house back. We can talk about a flood plan, it doesn't have to be fires, but not necessarily making the best future-proofing decisions. And that future-proofing is really important. It's not just putting it back. It's actually saying, here's an opportunity here to make things better than they were. Give you a little example. Recently, I was talking, actually it was on Tuesday this week, I was talking to um, one of the men in the recovery team uh, up in northeast Victoria, and he was talking to me about a community that he's working with. It's a really small community. Um, I drove through the town and thought I wasn't there yet. I hadn't realised that I'd actually driven through it and passed it. Really tiny space. You hardly notice a couple of houses in an intersection. They didn't really have flame in their area, in their town. They had some indirect impact. Um, but they are part of the whole recovery process and they're really in the centre of um, the, where the fire uh, footprint is. They sort of think we don't really need to get involved, we were okay, we weren't burnt, what should we be doing, should we just step out of it? There are huge opportunities for that community to build its resilience and that's when I started talking about what are we recovering? We're recovering resilience. So what we're doing is in our recovery process, we should be building in resilience for future events because we know with climate change and a lot of changes that are happening in the way that we live and the resources that we're consuming, that these things are going to come and hit us hard. So it's about building in resilience in our recovery process and making some tough decisions. Now, we're not talking about land use planning yet, and we mm. have to start talking about land use yeah. planning, and you sort of got to that, Josh. So. Um, Complicated. I hope that's given you something to think about. Well, I think the really interesting thing is is that is that we don't get a sense. We often think about the recovery space, and I 100% agree with you. It's those structural elements, and often, and I think it's it was um, disaster risk reduction really looks at and uncovers that you know disasters are really around that social element. The consequences of a natural hazard is really the culmination of all those social issues coming to a head. And I know we we're having a conversation yesterday, actually, with yourself, Amanda, around this. So, you know, can you help our, our listeners understand, you know, some people may have heard this idea around hashtag no natural disasters. And I think you touched on it there around the social elements in the recovery space. But what does hashtag no natural disasters mean in the Australian context? Well, it means the same as the global context. There is no such thing as a natural disaster. And we really need to stop using that phrase. Unfortunately, we have 
a royal commission. We have positions in government. We have people talking about natural disasters and it really is distracting. It's distracting the conversation we need to be having. Why, why is that? I'll give, look, I'll give you an example. A couple of months ago, there was a, an earthquake in northern Western Australia off the West Coast. Um, it was bigger than the New, Newcastle earthquake, which was clearly a disaster. But that earthquake of a bigger magnitude was not a disaster. It was a hazard. But because it didn't impact things that we value, uh, it wasn't considered a disaster. So the terminology that I like to use and that we are pushing to use is natural hazard. It is only a disaster when it impacts us or the things that we value. And that doesn't necessarily mean to be our personal lives and our health and well-being and our homes and our infrastructure. It's also places of cultural significance. So things that we value, if they get hurt or damaged, that is a that is a disaster. But unless they are, then it is a natural hazard. Another analogy is if you're standing on a jetty and there's a shark in the water, the shark is a hazard. If you're not in the water, it's not a disaster. But if you fall in, it's a disaster. So the shark is a hazard. It only becomes a disaster when you're in the water with the shark. So the reason why we don't want to talk about natural disasters is because if it's a natural disaster, people's tendency is to say, well, I can't do anything about it. It's a natural disaster. It's just going to happen. So I'm not going to worry about it. But if we say that it's a natural hazard that could potentially be a disaster, it really it, it tells us that we actually can um, contribute to minimising the impacts of it becoming a disaster by things that we do. Yeah. And that's at a really personal level and a community level, right? So we can actually do things in adaptation, mitigation, preparedness to turn a hazard into less of a disaster. And we talk about heaps of stuff, where we live, what we save, how we protect things, whether we leave our property or state of fight, whether we build in a floodplain, um, whether we build our homes to a certain bushfire attack level standard. There are lots of things that we can do to make a hazard less of a disaster. And that's really around accountability. What do, we, what do we value? What's our role and responsibility to protect what we value at a personal level, a household level, and a community level, and then at a social level? And what are we doing about it? To my mind, and I'll just put this out there, not quite enough at all of those levels. We're not doing enough yet because I think one of it's the cultural perhaps in Australia, she'll be right. Yeah. It won't happen. It'll be fine. We'll worry about it when it happens. And I think that's the really upsetting thing for myself working in this space is that when we talk about all these issues around land use planning, um, exposure, it's often the most socially vulnerable that are the ones that are going to be affected by this. They're the ones that, you know, if we build in a floodplain, it's going to be cheaper land because it's going to be less desirable. And who are those individuals that are moving into those spaces? They're they're the individuals that can't afford to mitigate that risk with insurances. But even worse than that, they're the individuals that can't afford to recover themselves from those. If they can't afford to prepare themselves, how are we going to expect them to recover from these instances? I love that. I love that we need to start looking in Australia and across the globe in a more holistic way around how we prepare communities and how we reduce disaster um, disaster risk. I love that. And I think too, the, the world's population growing is going to make that sort of exacerbate those problems and those mm-hmm. social issues. We're seeing it now with COVID. It's really the tipping point in some countries has been COVID to those social problems being exposed. And I think we're seeing bits of that on social media coming mm-hmm. from America and, and other parts of the world. It's certainly a challenge for us. But I was going to ask you, Amanda, around I think the um, – the notion of the community getting involved is certainly, for me, something we're seeing more of and something that agencies are really looking to do. Um, 
especially with climate change, people are realizing that's a threat. But what do you see as some of the other trends in recovery? And where do you see um, recovery heading in the future? Oh, recovery. It's one of my favorites. Um, and I started my career in emergency management in recovery, actually. Um, so I learned from some of the best, some of, um, some of the people that, Andrew, you and I have worked with before in projects. Um, really set me up for a really good foundation for what what is this recovery thing all about. I mentioned before, it's about recovering our resilience. I don't think we build resilience. I think that we all have it. I think resilience is something innate in us as human beings. And the recovery process is about um, finding that resilience and, and building up and recovering our resilience, which goes to that sustainability that I was talking about before. But what's, you know, when I started in, um, in emergency management uh, about probably seven or eight years ago, um, recovery, the conversation was no one cares about it, no one talks about it, all the investment, all the attention is in that response phase. It's busy, it's crazy, it's flames and water and lights and sirens, and that was the rush. And, and as soon as the fire was out or the flood had been sandbagged, everyone went home. And then those that worked in recovery were left to sort of do that really hard long yards work. And so our, our message then was we need to recovery starts when the disaster starts. And so we need to be having somebody in the incident control center who's responsible for starting the recovery process. I think that really has picked up momentum. Um, I, I see there's a bit of a shift towards the, using the word resilience um, instead of recovery very quickly. Uh, but recovery now, it's very much about um, not something that you do to a community or to people. It's something that is, you know, ideally community-led that we know that it is, it's a marathon, it's not a sprint, it takes a long time, it's really complicated. We understand the cycle of recovery that it goes through this, um, this emotional roller coaster where people um, survive, the immediate survival puts people in a really um, um, elated sort of state of mind which can last, you know, a couple of days or, or weeks where they, um, they're feeling fantastic because they survived, um, you know, they've, They've got real community cohesion and then they go through the process of feeling disillusioned um, as things take a long time. Communities can break apart, fall apart. Individual households can have a lot of problems. Mm. And then after, you know, years, uh, recovery, recovery sort of kicks in and people start understanding that they're not actually in recovery anymore. They're living, they're living life in their community in a new way. So I really like to transition pretty quickly and stop saying you're in recovery and talk to people about saying, you're in a new space now and this is what your life looks like now. You know, from, so for the, for, the, for the region that I was working in, um, forevermore that will be a region that experienced a horrendous bushfire. It's part of its psyche. It's part of its makeup now. So that will be incorporated into everything they do moving forward. So, so recovery, um, it's, got a, it's got a seat at the table. Uh, I still don't think that we're investing enough in that mitigation um, and preparedness which obviously makes that recovery process a whole lot different. But, you know, just quickly, what are we recovering? Um, where I've been working, there are a lot of farms. The economic impacts of the bushfires have been absolutely catastrophic for those communities. And then to have the tourism element taken away from those communities on top of their businesses suffering has been um, totally decimating for a lot of people. And I, I honestly don't think that we've seen the worst of it yet. We really need to be there. Uh, people like you and, and people like me, we need to be there for these communities to sit beside them and support them because they they have, I don't think they've seen the worst of this yet. They're heading into winter, cold, it's miserable, and there are no tourists. 
Yeah, it's pretty sad. And I think you mentioned something there that really struck a call with me in terms of that everyone in the community is really going on this journey together, whether they're uh, residents or businesses or there's multinational corporates that are, that are involved in that community. Everyone experiences the impact of the disaster together, although some are worse affected. But what do you think in the future? Um, do you see a role for the private sector to play more of a role? And uh, I know in COVID we've seen um, a lot of large companies come to the table and be really involved. Do you see that happening in, in other types of disasters as well? Oh, absolutely. That's so exciting, Andrew. I love, I love the idea of the private sector, the corporate sector, um, having a role to play. And they absolutely do. And they always have, actually. Um, we just don't really see it as much. And I have so many fantastic stories of what the private sector does in the immediate response and relief and then recovery. Uh, for example, um, cyclones in Queensland, power's out, people can't get cash from ATMs. You know the banks put ATMs on the back of trucks and take them up to Queensland and run them through generators so people can get cash. The most important thing for people is to get control back. Usually that comes by having money to buy a meal or to buy some fuel. Um, the, 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 the private sector responds to its customers' needs and more broadly to a social need. So um, private sector have been doing things like that for a really long time. They absolutely need to have a seat around the table. I think that we need to support the private sector in understanding what their role could grow into and be even more um, because at the end of the day, the, the private sector employs people. People get impacted by disasters. So um, it's, their, it's not just their sort of part of being part of the social contract that the private sector should be signing up to in Australia. Um, it's also the fact that their staff and their clients are impacted as well and there is an inherent role in supporting those people. So um, I'm all for having conversations with private sector, exploring opportunities. And that includes the insurance sector as well. They are such a partner. They are part of the emergency management sector without a doubt, like the media is. Um, people don't often see that. but um, COVID really has highlighted the fact that disasters can actually involve everybody. Not There's no one that's not been impacted. And I think that's, um, that is really interesting in terms of things like bushfires and storms and floods and cyclones, that we, we think of that as being um, a firefighting or, or, or the state emergency services or the Red Cross or the other agencies that put on a uniform. But there are so many different players involved in the emergency element, which is absolutely the private sector. They've got the will, they've got the desire, they've got stakeholders, they've got shareholders, they have got a corporate social responsibility element. Um, and again, people work there. People, people inherently want to help other people. We saw that in the bushfires. So the people in the corporate sector want to reach out too. Um, if we can find a way to actually really push that forward right now, and I think COVID is, is potentially something that will um, that'll see us working more closely with the corporate sector at a broad range of more of those natural hazards, um, it's, it's important. It's really the only way we can do it. So I'd like to probably just shift the gear of this conversation. We've been doing a lot of conversation around recovery. And I think you touched on it before, Amanda, around how important the preparedness and the mitigation um, in this process is. And I think sometimes we get... Um, we have a veil over eyes and we think preparedness and that mitigation work is setting us up for response. But what I'm hearing out of this conversation, it's a critical part, it's a critical part around how we set recovery up for success as well. So in terms of preparedness, there's a lot that's been going on in, in this space um, across Australia and globally as well around how do we reduce um, disaster risk. But I'd love to hear your thoughts around 
what is your take on the industry, especially in preparedness? I know Andrew and I have been having a lot of conversations around, you know, where do we get the most effective preparedness work happening? In your opinion, do you actually think that emergency services are the best placed um, organisations to be undertaking this work? Or is there better people or better placed organisations that could be helping in this space or be doing more? I think emergency services are second responders, second preparators and secondary recoverers because ultimately it all comes down to an individual or a household or a community. And I know I've said that a lot, but I think it's really important. Um, It's up to individuals to take some accountability and responsibility and control of their own individual circumstances and that can extend to their broader community group, whatever that community is. It could be geographic, it could be in a work sense or a, or a, um, a social online social sense. But, but it's really um, emergency services, I believe, um, in a preparedness context are there to support individual decisions, to give people information, um, to sit alongside people with tools and resources to assist them in building their preparedness um, and to sort of work as a team really. So I think I think emergency services do have a key role to play because there's a lot of experience and knowledge and I don't like reinventing wheels ever. There's a lot of experience that we already have that we can share with people, but it's all about it's about sharing knowledge and information with people so they make good decisions for themselves and it includes in preparedness. Um, I one of one thing that concerns me is is uh, I've also said a little bit about this. Um, laissez-faire, lackadaisical attitude to disaster preparedness that I see in people. And I've seen it in myself. I live in the Dandenong Ranges. When I first moved here, I was really vigilant every summer about preparing. And the further away from 2009 and the Black Saturday fires, the less vigilant I am, the more complacent I've become. I see, I see myself doing it. And what concerns me is that until people are personally impacted and hurt by something, the motivation to do something themselves, it's just we're too busy, it's not the priority, you can't afford it, I've got other priorities, particularly vulnerable communities. They are, they are trying to, mm. some people try to eat every day, let alone have a disaster preparedness plan, which is where, you know, we can provide more support. But preparedness is, is complicated. It's like insurance. You know, what if I prepare and nothing happens? Or what if you don't and something does? So it is a trade-off. People who can afford it and choose to quite readily just pay their insurance every month and quite often never need to use it. So how can we build in that psyche of being prepared, even though it might not happen, like we do pay for um, insurance? So I use this term preparing to recover. The reason we prepare, it's not about um, prevention. So do you remember the, we used to say prevention, preparedness, response, recovery? I don't say prevention because to be honest, in this environment, we can't prevent. We, We mitigate. I don't even like adapt really and we might talk about that in a minute but to be honest we we prepare for stuff that's probably going to happen so that our recovery is better so that's what we do when we're preparing we're thinking about our recovery and the response bit in the middle yeah emergency services get in there and help us out we really need that support that's really important working alongside communities but um you know my my big challenge in terms of the way i think and what i'd like to influence um in the emergency management context is how do we get people and communities and organisations, private sector and, and others, um, to, to take stock, to think about what do I value, what do I want to protect, 
And what am I going to do to protect that? What steps can I take? And there are some really easy steps people can take. I was, going to, I was about to say, obviously, a lot of our listeners are practitioners um, or maybe working in the industry. What are some practical tips for them about you know, how can they increase community participation or how can they bring the community on this journey? Do you have any practical tips around for these individuals working in these spaces? How can we bring the community into this space? What are some practical tips around how we can partner with communities? Yeah, so... Um, very much, it's, it's really hard. And actually, I don't think anyone's nailed this one yet. But in terms of a community-led approach to emergency or disaster preparedness or recovery, um, community-led doesn't mean community alone. Uh, what I say, it really is about community-led. But I, I, I talk to local governments and um, other agencies, emergency services, about walking alongside because we have information that the community doesn't have, but they actually have that lived experience and an idea about what they want their life or community to look like. So it's walking the fine line between sharing information and presenting ideas to a community without looking like you're taking over. And quite often what I hear from community groups is, you know, government's trying to own it, they're trying to lead it, they're doing it all, we're not having a chance. And so often the community will break away from government um, and want to do it on their own. And that's, that's really disappointing because... Local governments in particular are set up to support their local community. There's a lot of things that the local government can bring to help. So um, the sooner that the community and the local government in particular come together and realise they've both got things to bring, um, the more they can move on. You know, in terms of access to grants and access to funding, access to information, access to resources and experts, local government can help the community with that. What the community leads is its own agency and self-determination about what it wants its community to look like moving forward, future-proofing, more sustainable, more resilient. And a really specific example, I mentioned that little town before that I just drove through. Um, One of the things that I've been talking um, to the recovery team about a town like that is, yeah, you might not have had flame on your property this time. That was a close call. What are you going to do next time so that you can avoid suffering the harm and pain and suffering that the, that the town next door did. So a disaster is an opportunity for communities to really rethink their strategy for next time. Where are your evacuation points? Are they safe? What can you say? What can you protect? Um, a really practical thing at an individual level, I've spoken about this a bit before, but I live in a really high bushfire risk area in the Dandenong Ranges. Every summer about the middle of December when I feel the, the hot northerly winds pick up, I, I go around my home and I collect things that I value um, and I put them in storage. Off the mountain, in a storage facility, it costs $40 a month. It is absolutely cheap insurance. I don't have to worry about those things. I know wherever I am that there's an element of my life that I have protected and it's safe because I'm probably going to be on a fire truck. People say, what am I going to do on, in a fire? Well, I can't defend my property. It's really it's really, you can't defend it. I don't have a water supply here. I'm using tank water and I'll be on the fire truck. So I've just taken the, that concern about I'm going to lose everything. I won't lose everything because I've chosen which things I'm, I'm not going to lose and I protect them. And as I said, it's $40. You know, that's, you, you know, it's not much to pay for peace of mind. And we can start building in those sorts of really practical solutions at a community level. Yeah. And I think, um, I think there's good and bad things. I think, for me, uh, 
this this almost this distancing from community for emergency services is possibly a consequence of the professionalization of this sector, which, you know, brings good and bad things. But I think one of those things is that we've probably um, seen a bit of a distancing from communities and, and a distancing from involvement of the community. It's about, oh, the government's there and they're so professional now and they can look after everything. I don't really need to worry about that. So I think over the next couple of years, we really need to, as practitioners, change that conversation and flip it back on its head and start to point that that conversation back to the community and say, well, no, you know, this is a joint responsibility. This is a partnership between the two of us that we need to work this situation out. And, and from there, and I know that you've got a lot of experience in this play, um, in this space and, and you were in this space when you were working for ADA, I'd love to hear around what's your thoughts on spontaneous volunteers then? It, you know, to me, that's a real raw, organic um, representation of a community standing up and empowering themselves to respond to an event. What does, you know, we've been through lots of events and spontaneous volunteers in every major event come out but they often don't get the recognition or it's often seen as a headache for emergency services. Can you take us through what your um, understanding of spontaneous volunteers, what are their strengths, what are their weaknesses? And again, some practical tips for our listeners around what, how can they harness this in the future? Because it is something that we have to deal with. It's no longer an excuse that we can say, um, you know, we didn't know it was going to happen. What are some practical tips around our listeners around how they can harness that really powerful workforce? Uh, yeah, well, look, we, it's really interesting you talked about spontaneous volunteers because um, we recently produced a national handbook um, and we called it Communities Responding to Disasters. We didn't call it spontaneous volunteers because what we found was that um, people going to help somebody else, they don't think they're volunteering, they think they're being human. So it is a natural human response to go and help somebody who needs it. And we saw the absolute outpouring of money and help and people wanting to help over summer with the bushfires, it is very natural. So for somebody to say, oh, we're not going to do that, I've heard people say that. We're not going to do spontaneous volunteers. It's too hard. Well, my response is you don't have a choice and that's a pretty stupid response because um, and, and enabling people to assist and help out, particularly in their own community, um, is something that is incredibly important for the community and that person. So it, it helps them in their recovery, right, to help others. Um, and who are we to deny somebody helping their own community? Secondly, we are so overwhelmed in the emergency service sector in those early days that we need all the help we can get. Why would we turn it away? So here we've got, we know that people come and help. Um, we know that's come. It hap- it's been happening for hundreds of years in disasters. You can read a lot of stuff around this. People actually risking their lives, not just spontaneously volunteering a cup of tea and a blanket. People spontaneously volunteer their lives in disasters to help others. Um, and we, we know about this. We know this is what people do. So we know it's been happening for hundreds of years. Um, we know that we need a hand. We know that sometimes the people that are coming from the community volunteering know best how to help. There's no excuse, as you said, to say, oh, we didn't know that was going to happen. We have no plan. We don't know what to do and we're actually too busy. We're just going to ask everyone to go home. That is unacceptable. So we actually have some really great tools. We have some great case studies. We have some really fantastic ideas of where it's working well, where we can harness communities who want to help and volunteer their time um, in a moment of crisis. They see something or hear something and they want to jump in and help. We know how to actually mobilise that and make that a really useful experience. Yes, there are risks involved. There are a lot of myths as well. So we did a lot of myth busting. um, And I just hate the fact that people think that you're only volunteering because you want to come and steal something 
or um, somebody's got underlying um, really nasty, nasty intent to come and help. That's actually not true. That is actually not what's going on here. Shitty things happen in disasters. It's actually just in a disaster context. So it's not that people become nasty in disaster and become spontaneous volunteers to do stuff. They were doing it already. You know, so we can put checks and balances in place to minimise those risks. But um, spontaneous, spontaneous, is the word spontaneous really because, you know, I think Australia has the biggest volunteer workforce in the world. Is that right? Um, I think we do, and, and certainly in emergency services we do. Um, it is what, it's just part of the way we live here. It's what we do. I'm a volunteer firefighter because if my house was burning, it's only volunteers that would be able to come and help me. So why wouldn't I do that? It's sort of my, yeah. my community contribution is why I'm a firefighter. Um, and I think that's a really widespread belief. So let's not stop it. Let's, let's coordinate it where it can be coordinated. Obviously, I train to be a firefighter for six months. I don't just turn up and do it in a spontaneous way. There are so many things that people can help with. And these bushfires over summer, hearing the stories, um, I was in Gippsland um, in, in December and January, and then I've been up in New South Wales, South Coast in January, and then Northeast Victoria for the last couple of months. And the stories I'm hearing is really have people absolutely stretched. And there are a lot of jobs that I saw that could be done by people coming in and volunteering. And in fact, you'll be pleased to hear, I have been working with a spontaneous volunteer in the work that I've been doing for the last couple of months. Um, she doesn't want to be paid. She really wants to help and she's fantastic. And it is a data entry job, cleaning up a lot of data that we've got from our impact assessments and supporting us in pulling some reports and stats together. Um, it's been invaluable. We wouldn't have been able to have got to where we got without her assistance. And she wanted to volunteer. She didn't want to be paid. It was her contribution to the to the bushfire recovery effort. She's a local woman. So um, I think we're crazy if we're saying that this is a problem and it's all too hard. That is just immature, irresponsible and unprofessional. And I think it's really, it's really interesting what you say too about um, the way that volunteers have kind of always done this. Communities have always responded to themselves and, and helped each other. And it's only in the last sort of 50 years we've really professionalised that. But prior to that, communities just helped themselves and they did the rescue. They did the sort of the firefight. They did all that sort of work themselves. And now we're trying to professionalise it, which is a good thing, but it's almost over-professionalising and we're making it harder and increasing the barriers to entry for people to actually get involved in helping their communities. So, and, and we saw our last guest, um, Ance Rohan, who was, who was critical in the, um, in the volunteer army, uh, student volunteer army down in Christchurch. And he said to us, he said, you know, most people within the first 10 to 15 minutes of the earthquake, the person who was pulling people out of rubble was not a professionalised trained emergency service worker. It was the mum who saw someone caught under a bus stop that had collapsed. It was um, the construction worker who saw someone pushing a pram and pulled them out. So we've got to be realistic that emergency services and workers can't be everywhere at any minute at every second. We need to build this capacity into our communities, especially if we are going to go down the line where we're going to see more events, more severe. And if we don't fix some of those land use planning issues, we're building in more and more risky areas. It's just, it's this cyclic thing that if we don't put things in place now, it's only going to get worse. Mm. So a really, really practical thing about those first responders, because I said, I think emergency services are second responders. We see that, you know, we saw that on the in bombings in London, the, the, the Australian nurse, she was the first one there to, to help out. It's the person beside you that's going to be the first responder. And so what, in a practical way, um, what I would suggest is every person should have first aid qualifications, for example, really simple, because everyone should get themselves as a first responder because we actually are. 
Um, and, you know, sometimes emergency services have made a bit of a um, bit of a problem for themselves because we do this job because we want to help others. And so we rush in and do a lot of rescuing. Sometimes um, we, we can get in the way of that natural response by people around um, and by, by saving, by rushing in to save others where the community actually um, can do a lot for itself. There are some great stories of self-mobilising communities that have actually, um, there's, a, there's a, a town actually not far from me here in the Danjong Ranges. They've realised that in an emergency they will be cut off. Emergency services won't actually be able to get into them um, during a bushfire. And so they have actually upskilled themselves and it's community-led all volunteers. They've got first aid training. They've got psychological first aid training. They've got um, a, a, a space they can go to that's safe uh, and they've got provisions. They've got a plan and they've got a structure. So they've actually a town that will survive and be self-sustaining for the first 72 hours on the assumption that no emergency services will come in. So that's just a pocket. That's just an example. It didn't cost a lot. It just had some people that really got the risk and knew what they could do about it and tapped into emergency services to bring in the assistance and the training and the capability building. So if we just do that everywhere, we don't have to do it in Australia. That's too big. We just do it in one town by one town by one town. And before you know it, we've got a whole bunch of self-sustaining and self-mobilising communities taking responsibility. That's what it looks like. It sounds like a big problem because we always see it as being a national, a national response we need to do, a national shift. It, it happens at one household, one town, one community. We just need to do it a small and small and small and that'll expand out. It's exciting. I'm, I'm yeah. excited about just the get st- What yeah. I'm hearing is just get started. Pretty much. Just get in there and get your hands dirty and get started, guys. Yeah. Well, team, that's all we've got time for today. Join us for part two, where we delve into women in emergencies and Amanda's experiences in co-founding the Australasian Women in Emergencies Network. Catch you then. Thanks for listening to Me, Myself and Disaster. Subscribe today at memyselfdisaster.com. Learn more about disasters and follow our blog at disasterbros.com.